this sixth episode of Young Investor Society's Gen Xenomics. I'm your host, Gregory Shelsey, and today I'm joined with Max Pashman. He's a wealth management consultant, vice president, big shot from LA, and he's taking time out of his day to join us. So Mr. Pashman, if you would mind, can you please introduce yourself to the audience, tell them some stuff about yourself so they, so they know who they're listening to? Yeah, totally, Greg. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, great to be sending the message on here and preaching the word of financial literacy. But, you know, uh, my name is Max Pashman. I'm a wealth management advisor at One Wealth Management, uh, independent boutique firm here in Southern California. And kind of my mission is to make sure I can educate everyone uh, and help them understand the complicated financial world that they live in, all doing so without making their heads explode. And that's kind of been my motto since day one, is making sure that everyone that I sit across from can take something away from the meeting, whether they become a client of mine and I actually physically help them, or if they are just an observer or a learner, being able to view uh, my public speeches or my content that I regularly post on LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, with that, I'm able to provide free education for everyone in an easy bite-sized way to understand that any fifth grader could be able to comprehend. So my mission and my drive is just to make sure that anyone in my surroundings is getting the education that they deserve to have and something that we're here to do. So it seems that you love to help people, not only clients, but just people generally. So is this what made you develop a passion for finance or did that kind of come, this helping people thing, did that come after you got into the financial industry? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I've always been grown up to be an empathetic person. I give credit to my parents for allowing me to do that. And, you know, whether it was personally or professionally, I'd always try to put my foot in front of the door and make sure that I can get as front of as many people as possible and make an impact. But with regards to finance, you know, I think that I knew that I wanted to be in a business where I could be able to lift others up. And there's so many different roles, as you know, being in the financial sector, uh, you know, ways that you could be able to make an impact, uh, get compensated for it, and understanding what you do moving forward. And I just felt that when I chose the role of being in financial planning, which I identified as something I wanted to do one or two years after college, that's what I wanted to do because I felt like I could be able to curate a plan for people and be able to help them face-to-face, -face, not you know transactionally, but really from an advisor role and creating recommendations for people that would be able to get them closer to the goals that they set for themselves. So you said that you decided to become a, a financial planner and help people one to two years after college. So what did those first one to two years out of college look like? I know, I know for a lot of people, they feel very pressured to know what they wanna do before college and especially after they get their degree. So what, what was your thought process during those, those two years? Were you just looking for things to do? Just like, what was that like? Yeah, you know, I think my experience is very similar to a lot of my other peers. And it's really, what I had come to terms with is understanding that coming right outside college, I know I'm not gonna get the job that I dream of. And the reason is because I have no idea what I wanted. And on top of that, there's so many different occupations out there that it's really hard to pinpoint what you want to do for the rest of your life when you're like 20 or 21 years old leaving college. You have zero clue besides maybe an internship that you took. So in those first two years, it was about really just discovering what was out there. And 
in the first job I had, it was in an investor relations firm. And for the viewers that don't know what that means, investor relations is PR for investment companies. And our job in investor relations was essentially to bring awareness to publicly traded companies so that more investors would pay more attention to them. And as a result, create more volume because when you look at a company like Apple, Amazon, whatnot, and you look at the volume, the amount of trades that are being placed, it's in the millions, exactly. right? These companies that we were working with, they had maybe like a hundred or a thousand trades per day, which is yeah. nothing. So it was mm -hmm. very illiquid. Our job was to bring more volume into that. So in that realm, it was awesome to kind of understand the fundamentals of how a company is structured, what they're what they're expecting to give to their investors when they're on a press call for a quarterly earnings release, all that was great. But I, I didn't feel like my, my heart was in PR, but I knew that being in the finance area, this is where I wanted to be. I just didn't want to be in this role. So then after that, I became uh, an associate financial advisor at Northwestern Mutual. And I was over there for about three years after that. And in that period of time, I knew that financial planning was what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to be in front of people. I learned everything. I learned, you know, the business process of being an advisor, uh, the education aspect, what I should be knowing. And then with all that put together, it helped me understand that I wanted to be an advisor. And then I was probably going to move to a company after that. So here I am at One Wealth Management, uh, you know, a VP advisor. And it came after roadblock after roadblock, but kind of going back to your first question, if I didn't know what I was doing, if I didn't just, you know, try to do something, I would have never known what I didn't like. And I think it was trial and error in every job. It's like, I love this, but I don't like this. So the next job, I'm going to get more of what I like versus what I don't like. And then from that job, it's understanding what I like from that and what I don't like. So it's about filtering the process every step yeah. of the way. And I think that it's really important for anyone graduating from college to understand that concept. So trial and error, if, if you could have done it differently though, would you have rather done the trial and error through internships in college as opposed to like in the real workforce? Or do you think having it be more real, I don't know if real is the right, right term, but more not interny, I guess you could say, do you think sure. that affected it? Like, did that leave you with any disadvantages or would it all have been the same? I don't think so because I feel like when you get an internship, it's like a part-time job. You know, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, your main job is college, school. Yeah. And this is kind of what you're doing on the side. For me, when you go into this entry-level job, it's like the first time you're an adult, realistically, because I, I never felt like an adult when I was in college. As yeah. You probably can relate to that. But once I got the training wheels off, that's when I felt like I was in control. So I don't think it really, I, I mean, obviously experience is vital for getting that entry-level job that you're seeking. I didn't do that much internship before, but I know that a lot of people did and they got great jobs from it and they learned it earlier or later. At the end of the day, it's a matter of what you make of the situation. Exactly. So, so that's all that matters. And in, in, in regards to entry-level jobs, I think it's only right to connect it to the news. Obviously, Goldman Sachs interns and Jeffrey's interns are complaining about, about the daunting work week. Did you have anything like that when you were working to try and 
get volume for stocks or Northwestern Mutual? Or do you think that's no. strictly a more of a large investment bank thing? Yeah, that that realm is specifically for investment banking. I, I can confirm that just from my friends that have been working at Wall Street. Some of them have been working at Goldman Sachs, uh, Merrill Lynch, and you know, even starting their own investment banking practices. Some of my close friends are still in that world. Um, you know, it's it's amazing how this is now being brought to the attention because I feel like what they were going through has been going on for decades. Oh, since like the 1980s. Yeah, and oh it's, it's amazing because there's been this push for mental health awareness, which is awesome. I it mean, is it's definitely. Great. It's great that people are learning about this and to know that it's now, you know, being brought to the attention of probably the job where it most likely happens out of any other occupation that I can think of. I mean, it's great that they're finally paying attention to it. it it's interesting to see how the banks are handling it. Um, I'm pretty sure one, I think Apollo Group is giving a, a, a check to all people below associates to keep them on, you know, because your mental health apparently can be bought when you're on Wall Street. And in regards to that, a lot of the people I've been reading interviews and those slides that they've been posting, and a lot of guys and girls in investment banking say that they do it because they feel the exit opportunities from a place like Goldman are incredible. So then the mindset is if you if you deal with 100 to 120 hour work weeks for five, six years, all of a sudden you really have become a commodity among boutique banks and even just other banks on the street. So now that you're a few years out of college, you've, you've seen it a little bit and obviously you're doing well. Do you think those exit opportunities are any more valuable or is it or is it just a myth to get people to stick around for an extra few months? I think it's about what you make of it. You know, because I know a lot of people with a ton of experience that don't excel that much to people that, that barely have had enough, enough experience. And I just think that our actions are the sum of who we are. And it's a matter of what you do with it. Experience only matters if you know how to drive it. You know where to point that type of direction. So when, when people say that, I'm sure that they do. I'm sure that after they leave their investment banking job, they're able to go to like a premier, you know, bank after that or whatever they want to do. I would credit that to their drive than their experience. Cause I feel like confidence is what's built underneath it all. And if people, I mean, people like to work with others that are confident as you probably know. So yeah. I, I think that, and I say this, you know, knowing very successful people under their thirties that have gone in that direction and have not gone in that direction. Exactly. So, so it's a matter it, of you as a person. Yeah. It's just who you are as a person and what you're willing to do the moment you wake up and you go to sleep at night. Yeah. How, how do you stay sharp? I mean, it, it seems to me that once you get into the workforce, it's, it's different from school in the sense that in school you have grades, so you have much more tangible ways of assessing how you're doing. And although in the workforce you have bosses and you have PowerPoint slides to fix at three o'clock in the morning, according to Goldman interns. But what, what do you do to keep yourself motivated and keep yourself going in that regard? Yeah, and this is a great question because I feel like this is, when you're in the position that I'm in running your own practice, motivation is number one. It's the number one thing. And people either do this, um, you know, they're naturally motivated or they have to discover what motivates them. Cause it's like, they say, what motivates you more, the carrot or the stick? And you don't really know 
what that is until you actually try. So what do I do for myself? You know, I have to remind myself of the main goals that I'm trying to accomplish, not from, not just from week to week, but in a five year period from now. I mean, little things that I do for myself is I have a vision board. I actually learned this from Northwestern Mutual is they, what we do is we type up kind of a one pager and in it, we write about where we see ourselves by December 21st, 2021. And when we write this out, we write this in present tense. And the reason why we do that is because we want to get the sense that this is going to happen. So I write in, you know, like the first sentence, uh, it's 2021 and I've absolutely crushed this year. I was able to hit my goals by meeting with this many people. I was able to do it by bringing this amount of assets in. I did it by going to the gym five times per week. I was able to do it. So, so, so whatever those things are, it's good to have them visually laid out and you write it down too, because I think that people that are driven are able to stay motivated, do things on a routine basis, whether it's weekly or on a daily basis. Like for me, when I wake up, I have a daily planner, like right over here that I take out, I write three of things that I'm absolutely grateful for on a daily basis. And then I'm very, I'm very religious with my calendar as well. Like I got my thing on Outlook right here, but in my daily planner, I will still write out what I'm doing throughout the day because I want to make sure that I can reconfirm that this is something that I'm going to do. Underneath it all, it's all a mental habit. That's my mental habit. Everyone is built differently. So I think that it's about trying as many uh, activities and tips that you can and really get a sense of it. I mean, even now I'm working with a coach. I mean, cause that's what helps me uh, make sure that I'm kept accountable for what I do. So it's about just discovering what works for you. So keeping yourself accountable, do you think there's, do you think there's enough of that in, in the financial services industry, people holding each other accountable to see each other succeed? Or do you think it's competitive in the sense that people allow peers to fail for self-betterment? Have you, have you dealt with any of that? Um, you know, the thing is, is that maybe there by standard, there's one person that keeps me accountable. But what I personally do is I keep multiple people. I make sure that they keep me accountable is what I should say. Yeah. I have my coach, I have my family, I have my COO, and I have another friend of mine. And I literally tell them exactly what it is that I want to do. The reason why I tell them that is so that they can text me one day is like, hey, Max, where are we on track of that? It's not a matter of them micromanaging me. It's just, I've set that standard for myself because no one is going to do any accountability unless I set it myself. So, and and that's with my industry because I'm running my own book of business over here. I need to set these boundaries for myself. I need to make sure that the parameters are set so that I can be able to accomplish these things that I've written on my vision board. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, Going back to what you were saying about, you know, being competitive. Some people are driven by competition. Some people are driven by a quota. Some people are driven by the things that are, they lay down in front of them. It's all about understanding what it is and understanding that you don't have, not all these different things that I'm laying out might work for everybody, 
but you got to try it yourself and see what works. It's interesting. And we've gotten a little bit deep into this. So I want to circle back around to what you do. Um, sure. So obviously, you know, you do, you do money management for people like on a, on a uh, advisor level and stuff like that. What you say it's redeeming to help people, but more specifically when you're building portfolios and you're building plans, what's your favorite part of building a plan for a, a group or a person? Is it, is it the buying of assets? And I hope your compliance department lets me ask this. Is it, is it the buying of assets? Is it just getting to talk to them and touch base? What do you find the most interesting? Yeah, you know, typically speaking, when I meet with my clients, you know, I try to make it as simple as possible for them. And, you know, I don't spend every single day curating portfolios, right? Uh -huh. And quite frankly, that's a very inefficient, you know, amount of time that an advisor could be doing. But on a review basis, maybe like on a monthly basis, like I'll sit down with the team, I'll ask them what we should do. And what I, what I really like is seeing how we can be able to reallocate certain areas. So like, for example, like in the equity area, you know, typically speaking, we want to identify sectors that are outperforming others. Mm -hmm. So come, for example, the pandemic, the two top sectors that were outperforming the rest were tech and healthcare. Now that we're coming out of, you know, you know, we'll see where the, the light of the tunnel is right now. But what we're seeing right now is not so much emphasis on the healthcare area, still a lot on tech. But even recently, like, you know, we're looking at the rise in uh, value investing again and whatnot. And I like to kind of identify these areas and just ask the team, you know, hey, I've been noticing these changes. What can we do to allocate to these portfolios? So we then we then review it together make sure that we're putting together the right basket of funds, uh, you know, because we like passive investing, right? We like to put together a portfolio with index funds and ETFs that are reasonable for our clients and making sure that they, uh, you know, they reflect on what they're trying to accomplish. And I, you know, for specific clients, it, it's all a matter of how we allocate it, right? And that's going to ultimately depend on what their time horizon is and what they're trying to achieve in between. So, Varying on the client, you could, you know, be in certain types of equities and this, that, and the other, but it generally, you're more of a passive investor, not as much of a growth chaser, which, which I respect. I, I have, I have that streak in me where I need to, I need to be a growth investor, but that's just, yeah. that's just me. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, if our clients want to go down that path, I mean, like we, we like you say growth, but you know, you can be, you can be very risk aggressive in yeah. the passive strategy. Right. You can do that with index funds and ETFs. You can go all aggressive if you want. If, you know, clients want to go more into the stock picking area, that's kind of reserved for our, you know, high net worth area because, you know, relatively speaking with, you know, normal people that I sit in front of, I don't want to overcomplicate things with them. Exactly. I want to get them started and I want them to kind of understand why they're doing these things. Once they get to a level where they're accumulating a certain amount of assets under management with us, then we go into the details. Like, okay, let's see what we could do from this point onwards. Do you do you feel that your your tolerance for risk has has changed as you've grown to manage more money? And what I mean by that is, I find it very easy for me to take risk when it's my own money because it's me. But once somebody asks me asks me for stock advice, it becomes a totally different thing because it's not my money. How do you negate that? Do you still feel that sometimes? And what's that like for you in regards to your just your own risk tolerance just as a whole? Yeah, I mean, like I'm just like you. I would say I'm very oh, really? risk, 
I, I take a ton of risk in my portfolio. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I have a ton of equity myself because that's, that's how I am built, right? Like yeah. I can take that kind of risk because I'm comfortable with the amount that I am personally doing. When I sit in front of clients, that's a whole different ballgame. And you have to be very mindful of what it is that they want to do because you want to, you want to reflect the portfolio that is in line with what they are doing. Mm-hmm. They could be spooked by the markets, right? Exactly. So if you don't want to be totally uh, all risk in there. You want to kind of diversify that into other areas. On the flip side, they also might have a shorter time horizon. You know, when they're older, let's say like the 50s or 60s, they're way more conservative, right? We're going to have like less emphasis on equities because that is the conservative way to preserve their funds rather than focusing on growth. So it really comes down to their time horizon and their personality. And we have to factor that into curating their portfolios. I have an interesting question about that. So I'm a, I really love Peter Lynch. He's probably my favorite investor. And in Beating the Street, he had a, a quantitative finance person at Fidelity do the math based off the returns of bonds and the returns of equities over the course of 10 years. I believe it was retroactive. But basically, the gist of it was that you could be taking dividend-paying equities, like stocks like Coca-Cola, Pepsi, and stuff like that, and their appreciation as well as their dividend growth would allow you to invest less and generate more returns while living off them. Because it's to the best of my understanding that some people invest in bonds for income. You get what I mean? So. Yeah. In that regard, do you think that there's a somewhat of a stigma around bonds that they're safer, although in reality they're less efficient and they might present a large opportunity cost? Or is that just me being a little bit too too hardcore on the equity side of things? What you're identifying is a different risk than equity risk, right? Mm-hmm. Because you know what bonds go through is more of interest rate risk yeah. more than anything else. We're seeing that with the Federal Reserve these days. And that's yeah. why people are kind of stepping away from the bond area. But from this point onwards, there might be a little more emphasis on it. We don't really know yet. But the important thing to remember is like, what is it that you're trying to get for the client? Is it really growth? Is it more on the income side? Is it to just, you know, preserve that portfolio asset, you know, that you're trying to do right there? I mean, typically speaking, you know, our clients, like they aren't like taking income from their portfolios, they either want to grow it or they want to preserve it. Um, in a lot of ways, they want to take that income and they want to reinvest right back inside, especially especially if they're retirement accounts, because um, yeah. that's the best way to you know take advantage of that compounding interest inside. Well, at least they aren't saving. I think this year has proven that being a saver isn't necessarily a good thing. Um, I, I talked about that a little bit in an earlier episode. And mm-hmm. my thought is with the government continuing to print money, um, I'm really going to tread lightly because I don't know what I can and can't ask in relation to this. Do you think that that would result in more people feeling that bonds are necessary? Because I've been seeing a lot of the 10 year bond uh, rates have been going up and that always kills the NASDAQ. And I know because it hurts my portfolio very, very much. But fact of the matter is, do you think that this, the second wave of stimulus and rumors of a third, an infrastructure bill being passed will make riskier investments in equities less favorable as people like your your clients go to higher bond rate, um, higher yield bonds and stuff like that to to mitigate risk and avoid inflation. Yeah, you know the thing about it is, you know they they work. They're supposed to 
you know, in theory, they're supposed to work in opposites with each other. But I would just say that just keep in mind the type of market we're in right now. I mean, this is very unusual where things aren't exactly going by the books. Yeah. I mean, you know, when, you know, the pandemic started occurring and unemployment was skyrocketing, the market wasn't exactly in tangent with where the economy was going. And I think that a lot of people that are trading uh, and that are investing need to keep in mind that it, it's pretty, I would say, pretty detached from what is historically supposed to happen. So I think it's really important that while there is still a ton of volatility, the VIX is still up and you know we're still seeing a ton of risk being passed around, I think it's just more important to look at the bigger picture, where you try to see yourself in 10 to 20 years. As broad as that sounds, it's been a pretty reliable piece of advice that hasn't let a lot of people down. So I think it's just understanding the bigger picture underneath it all. How do you keep yourself focused on the bigger picture? From the day to day, it's been incredibly volatile. What what do you allow yourself to do? What do you think? What do you what do you say to people and clients to keep yourself focused on those on those long-term goals? Because it, it's very hard. And I say this for the new investors that listen, it's very hard to pay attention to the long term when you see your portfolio fall off of a cliff because there's yeah. a virus, you know what I mean? Yeah, if you, if you really want to help yourself, uh, get your brokerage account or whatever it is and put your stocks in it. And then once you actually have invested in it, uh, get rid of the uh, app from your phone and your computer, just put it away. Because you probably that is going to be the easiest way for you to do it because the reason why it gives you so much anxiety is because you're looking at the markets day by day and you're like, oh my God, where's my portfolio from here? It's so tough. Because it's so, because we're constantly throwing our emotion into that. And to me, I just say what I do with my current, you know, portfolio strategy. I say that, I literally just say to myself, where do I honestly see these stocks 10 years from now? If it's anything other than up from here, they're gone. Yeah. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Because I'm, I'm very bullish on this economy in the long run. You know, Warren Buffett famously stated in his annual shareholder meeting, never bet against America. And I am 100% with them on that. I mean, it's crazy to try to turn it around. You may be right for a short period of time, but it doesn't for a couple last. of years, but in that 10-year time horizon, I, I'm not trying to short the entire time. So I, I'm, I'm very long-term on it. Exactly. The, the gains made by being bearish in a short term and happening to be correct like in 08 or even recently with COVID doesn't compare to the gains made in the previous bull run. There are people right after 2008 betting that the market was still going to go down and they waited 10 years for a bottom that never happened. Um, I, I feel, especially in our economy, it's much harder to be bearish. I, I think macro wise, it's nearly impossible, but in individual equities, you can be more bearish. With your investing strategy, do you ever do things like short positions or are you mainly long on companies? No, I'm, I'm typically long on our portfolios. Um, you know, if our clients say to us like, Max, I, I'm really just not comfortable with how it's positioned, we'll reallocate the portfolio. Mm -hmm. But the problem that you see, you know, when taking short positions is it very overcomplicates things. I think that at the end of the day, you know, we want to make sure our clients are seeing our strategy eye to eye with where they are. 
And if I have to lecture them on what shorting is, it, they're just going to absolutely lose it. They're just like, I don't even know what this is. I don't, I should do more research on it. I think that, and, and let's be honest with ourselves. Shorting is a game that's mastered by hedge funds. They do it for that reason. And then when they do that, they take a 3% fee out of their assets under management and they charge you 20% for the profits that you make because they're willing to take that kind of risk. Traditional investing, it's, it's not really you know, a common strategy that's done because of the long-term vision that you have for your time horizon. I know, I know hedge funds employ uh, long, short equity. And I, the reason I asked was I wasn't sure if you were also in that boat. It's, do you feel though, if you were to have a client hypothetically who was very skilled in the market and just wanted some, some advising that you would be more open to entering those types of strategies? Or is this more of just a blanket thing where it's, I am not shorting. I just want to keep it simple because it seems to me that you can be getting clients of various knowledge of the market and various expertise. And if you have somebody who's more knowledgeable, I think in my opinion, but keep in mind, I don't know, it would make sense to, to use their knowledge to the best of your ability. So what do you think about that? I'll just say if someone is really pushing me to do that at that point, they probably want to manage their own portfolio and they don't even want to hire me because my job, my job is to make sure that I'm giving you something that you are, you know, you feel like you're not well versed in. Most people, most people that I know that are shorting are like doing this on a daily basis. Yeah. Like it is general interest. I don't have average, you know, parents coming up to me like, hey, can I short my portfolio? Like yeah. they don't even know what shorting is, right? So I think it's reserved for a more tactical approach, depending on how our relation is, we may be able to make an exception, but for the most part, not, not typically for average people. You say make an exception. Does that exception apply to the fact that it's just a moral code where you don't want to let people short because once one person does it, everyone else does? Or is it something that as a firm as a whole, you've decided not to do for return reasons or something like that? I think it's more of a reputation standpoint because i feel like we may be in a we may be you know not working in the client's best interest if we're going to be putting these short positions and on top of that you know the thing is is that it's not entirely cheap to short yeah right you know if you're going with put options for example there's a hefty premium that's to come out of it and you know that's in place for a maximum of nine months that could be costly if you're putting together put options every so often. And then on top of that, you know, if you short a stock, you have to pay an interest for that. So it's, it's a lot of costs that are tied to it. And that's why the hedge funds are able to compensate for it. So I think that it's a very risky game and it's a very costly one too, if you don't play your cards right. Especially in this atmosphere, there seems to be a lot of bear hunting on stocks like GameStop, AMC. I unfortunately got tied up in one of those. I, I didn't even mean for that to happen. They just kind of showed up one day and I said, oh, I guess, I guess we're doing this now. Do you, do you think that the, the whole GameStop fiasco has affected interest in investing on your end? Obviously for teenagers, everyone wants to invest now because they heard that you can make a thousand percent a day and little do they know that's not the norm. But for adults and, and older individuals, do you think that's, that's helped create more interest or is it status quo for you in regards to that? Um, you know, I think that, I think it was a wake up call more than anything else. I think what it would show to us is that people are paying attention to this stuff 
because traditionally, you know, before GameStop, it was just called a, a pump and dump, right? Mm-hmm. They would you know, buy a ton of stock and then sell it with the intention of manipulating the stock so they could get a quick buck and a lot of people lose. This is such a weird situation because it's still ongoing. Yeah. Usually the, those pump and dumps, they would happen in like a two-week period or something like that. That's what I would see when I was looking at, you know, penny stocks back then. I'd see it all the time. But it didn't happen to this like mainstream level where it was all over headline news. And I think that what it showed to like the older adults is that there's a lot of power being displayed by a couple of random Robinhood investors nationwide that have never even met each other before, right? So it's just, it's an interesting situation. I'm, I'm particularly interested to see what happens when Robinhood goes public because I feel like that's going to be the meme god compared to these meme stocks. Oh, of course it is. I, I'm, I'm incredibly bullish. I guess I'm allowed to say this. I'm bullish on Palantir. And I remember when they first did a direct public listing, um, it was the meme stock for a little bit. And I think, it's, I think it's really interesting how, obviously, when you're investing, you're keeping clients in mind, but you aren't holding or buying shares. So uh, a wealth management guy in uh, Wyoming makes money because you don't care about them. You care about yourself and your clients. And I found that this whole thing on Reddit where it's like, hold the line so I can buy my mom a Lamborghini is interesting because people are investing and they're caring about people who they've never met, which let's be honest. I mean, that that's not going to end well, probably, but I also don't want to go on the record and say that because I don't want to be proven wrong in my sixth podcast episode. Um, but Oh, I, ju- I just lost my question. <laughs> I just lost my question. I'm sorry about that. But just in relation to it as a whole, with the, with the meme stocks and all of that stuff, do you think that it was handled properly? Stopping people from buying shares, um, Citadel Capital doing all the stuff that they did. Do you think that it was handled fairly or do you think it exposed how corrupt Wall Street was in relation to individual investors? Because there's always been a myth that it's us against the hedge funds and the hedge funds always win. So do you think this exposed that or it was, what are your thoughts? Yeah. So there, there's a lot I could talk about this. Um, the thing, it, the thing that people need to know is that, I mean, I, I would say that, you know, what everything, what Vlad was saying when he was talking about uh, the liquidity situation and trying to get capital reserves, I understand all of that. I, I understand perfectly what he was saying because I know the regulation that uh, you know that was imposed on him. The you know the general consensus and what's very popular is that there was something corrupt and evil happening behind the scenes. In my personal opinion, I think it w- it was more so Robin Hood not being prepared for this much trading volume, which they should have been. Yeah, and I think that you know, what happened was obviously they had this massive flow. And the reason why I would say that they should have been prepared, Robinhood should have been prepared, is because they had been advertising themselves as we're not like Wall Street, right? Exactly. And unfortunately, they got themselves in a situation where they were not prepared like a brand new brokerage firm. Now, with relation to Citadel and Melvin Capital, you know, I, I, it's hard to say that it was orchestrated like so. I understand why they're saying that because of the deal flow uh, organization behind it and how they sell their orders to, uh, you know, Citadel. But 
what Vlad was saying, it, it makes sense when you actually look at the legislation because, you know, ever since the Great Recession happened, everyone has to keep in mind that a, a lot of tight regulation has been put in place as a result of the Dodd-Frank Act. I think a lot of people tend to overlook that. And, you know- Can you clarify for everyone listening? I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just sure. want to make sure they know what that is. The Dodd-Frank Act was uh, a legislation that was put together by the Obama administration as a result of the Great Recession. The reason why they did that is because they wanted to put more restrictions on Wall Street. And they did that with even more regulation than what they had because, you know, for a couple decades, they've been going through, you know, deregulation, which in all honestly, wasn't too bad. The only bad part of what happened in the entire thing was the fact that our government bailed out every one of these banks. That was the terrible thing that happened. But as a result of this, you know, the Obama administration wanted to act on it. So they put together the Dodd-Frank Act which set around parameters and restrictions around how they use their derivatives and how they regulate, you know, securities and transactions that are happening. And I guess, you know, according to my research, one of the things that was included in the Dodd-Frank Act was exactly what Vlad was saying. It was this, you know, reserve and capital that a brokerage account needs to retain in order to uh, handle a certain amount of trades that are coming in. So, in a, I'm also with him on restricting the stock in the sense of people are saying, well, why do you, why you not let people uh, buy the stock, but you let them sell it? And he's like, well, you know, imagine if I told you you couldn't sell your stock, you'd be pretty pissed off at me. So I guess that, you know, he made that point. I'm just like, I guess so. But Robin had got that to themselves. They just weren't structured appropriately. They weren't prepared. And as a result, it just caused this entire fiasco to happen. It's, I've seen a lot of people shifting away from Robinhood to companies like SoFi, Charles Schwab, TD Ameritrade. And personally, I think it's good. I've never heard anything too positive about Robinhood's platform as compared to like Thinkorswim, um, Interactive Brokers, I know is a great one. I mean, that leaves me with one other question before we wrap up, because I don't want to take up too much of your time. And it's a little bit off topic, but as somebody in wealth management, what, what platforms do you use to trade that would be different than us? Like, do you have a, an extra large interactive brokers account or do you have specific accounts for clients or how do you go about doing that? For, for me personally or the firm? The firm. The firm. So we use a custodian called Pershing LLC. They're with a bank of New York. So we have our clients go right through there. And uh, we, you know, I have like my 401k at Fidelity and I personally trade with my brokerage over at uh, E-Trade. Honestly, they're all just custodians. They're just there to actually do it. So I, no I love for Charles Schwab, huh? No love? Oh, we, we got some love over there depending on some clients that we have in the past. Good. Just, um, I just needed to hear that from you. That's all. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think any account is bad. Like yeah, I think you went with Fidelity, you went with Charles Schwab, you went with any of them, it doesn't make it, it doesn't make too much of a difference anymore. And that was because of Robin Hood, the moment that they got rid of commission uh, trading. I mean, you get you young people are lucky. I spent so much of my personal money, you know, on these transactions, they were racking up. But now it's at a point where all of these different companies, they offer literally the same thing with each other, and they don't really charge that much. So I think, you know, wherever you went to, you'd be totally fine. 
So now I just need to ask, so why? What, what allowed them to make that switch? Because um, when did you start trading and buying stocks? Around what time was that? Oh, I mean, like I, I opened an account when I was in college because I wanted to, I wanted to get into it, right? Yeah. So I, I, did I have an E-Trade account? I had an E-Trade account and then I did open a Robinhood account and then my compliance said I couldn't do it. So I had to take it down um, because they weren't that regulated at the time. Like I was there during like the beginning stages. Yeah. Um, so because you're not familiar, you have to, you have to go through approved uh, platforms to work with. But uh, generally speaking, you know, the Robinhood was the one to disrupt that, to take the commission trading out of it. And once they did it, then everyone else had to do it because everyone was going to Robinhood. And at that point, Robinhood got a huge fan base inside of it. So now the question is, why are you on Robinhood? Is it because your buddy has it or is it because of a you know certain reason that appeals to you? They tend to, they tend to appeal to the younger crowd because I know that they're very sophisticated on their app compared to like E-Trade and a bunch of other platforms. But at the end of the day, it's just a matter of what makes you feel comfortable. Oh, so thank you so much for, for coming on to my podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you all for listening so much. Um, join us next week for episode seven. And that's it for episode six. Thank you so much once again. And thanks for listening. <laughs>